And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and on a weekend when the Mercedes drivers collided, Oscar Piastri won his first F1 race, and tyre troubles led to an old-school racer. Pushing between pit stops, Max Verstappen became a triple world champion. But were the conditions in the Qatar Grand Prix too extreme for the drivers? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to unpack it all are Mark Hughes and Ben Anderson. Well, Ben, we'll come to you first. Our super sub, how has it been playing the role of Scott Mitchell-Mound this weekend? Yeah, it's been uh, quite the wild ride. Actually, my first race in the paddock since Japan 2019, so pretty much bang on four years. Uh, and I was expecting a fairly quiet one, you know, a, a dude called Max Verstappen maybe to wrap up his third world championship. But other than that, fairly quiet and everything's just gone absolutely wild. Um, so busy um, and I have to say um, a very nice welcome in the paddock too from drivers, teams, uh, fellow members of the media that I've caught up with. Um, yeah, it's felt like something of a homecoming, actually, like I've not really been away. So, yeah, very enjoyable. So the typhoon race in 2019 and then this one, there's trouble wherever you go, Ben. Yeah, yeah, it, it does seem to follow me around. Um, I, re- I remember uh, when they cancelled qualifying in Japan that year, uh, hanging out in my hotel room on the Saturday night, wondering if I was going to wake up to see the Sunday as they forecast doom. But fortunately, the the typhoon swerved us that day, but I don't really think the uh, the typhoon of events swerved us this weekend in Qatar. Ah, oh, that's very, very elegantly put together there. And for those of you wondering where Scott is, his first child was born on Saturday. And appropriately enough, given Oscar Piastri won the sprint race, he's named his son Oscar Mitchell Malm. That's Oscar with a K, but close enough. Scott will be back soon, but he's got a hell of a lot on his hands now. So congratulations to him and Mark. 
While we may not have Scott here, we do have you, as we've already heard from. You're in the midst of working through your various race analysis stories. Are you enjoying getting into a slightly different kind of race compared to what we usually see? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, this was a bit like um, old school, tyre ward, but it was um, obviously for very different reasons. But it, yeah, it's quite refreshing to see uh, see drivers going flat out in between multiple pit stops. I quite like it. And of course, there was a bit of tyre failure concern. So it's a bit US 2005, isn't it, in terms of that? It wasn't anywhere near that extreme, fortunately. But uh, yeah, one of those interesting storylines. And we should, before we get into anything else, talk about Max Verstappen, shouldn't we, Mark? We're going to do an in-depth podcast on him before Austin, to give him the time he deserves. But we can't really not, not get into it, at least a little bit. Would you like to add to the chorus of praise for F1's newest triple world champion? I mean, what a, what more is it to say, really? He's, <laughs> he's one of the greatest... You're going to have to think of something because there's another podcast to come. <laughs> he's slow, I've just inconsistent done like, and just not very good. I've just done a 90,000-word book on him, so, you know, yeah, I suppose we can do another three sentences. Um <laughs> He's one of the greatest drivers the sport's ever seen, isn't he? And, and he's driving the best car for the sharpest team. And this is just the logical outcome of that set of circumstances, I suppose. That's, that's as uh, much as you need to say, really. Yeah, he's absolutely relentless, isn't he? I, I, I thought it was interesting that he uh, he said, uh, after winning the, the, the Qatar Grand Prix itself, that uh, he's just f- full focus on the next thing. You know, he's won the World Championship, three World Championships, which is, you know, an incredible feat for any driver, very rare achievement, especially for one so young. And yet he's just, uh, carry on, next race, I want to win that too, and the next one, and the next one. He's just an absolute machine. Yeah, he's just an absolute force of nature, Max Verstappen. He does everything right, and most importantly, he does everything right continually, relentlessly, and he's going to be just as driven to win the next five races as he is every other one. It's it's quite remarkable. And yeah, there's absolutely zero question. He's he's now in the ranks of the all-time greats. To be honest, he was that before he became a triple world champion, but an absolutely phenomenal driver. And it's been a privilege to watch him work. I know people find it a bit repetitive and it's better to have more different storylines, but the extraordinary can be made to look very boring by someone that exceptional. As Mark said, working with a team, quite incredible driver, Max Verstappen, and many more wins and titles, I'd have thought, to come. But Ben, getting on to the race itself, let's start at the beginning with the Mercedes drivers colliding at the start. What did you make of this incident? Was Lewis Hamilton right to take the blame? Well, we we did a podcast on recently on F1's teammate battles and which teammate pairing might be the best in F1, and we settled on the Mercedes drivers at the end of that show. And I said in that podcast that I felt that that teammate dynamic was the one that was most likely to blow up at some point. It was fairly benign while Mercedes has been uncompetitive, but we saw flashes at Suzuka of them getting their elbows out, getting a bit close on track, but that was just about okay. This was obviously quite different to that. Um, Lewis trying to use the benefit of his soft tyres off the line. He wanted to jump Max. I don't think he was going to win the race, obviously, but I guess he fancied a cameo in the lead. Why not? And I think he just misjudged it slightly. I don't think he quite got the momentum he needed to get the move done. It's always dangerous going around the outside of anyone. Three cars abreast, especially dangerous for the car on the outside. George obviously got a pretty good launch himself, was trying to pass Max 2 or at least challenge him and couldn't, just couldn't disappear. 
um, as they got to turn one and uh, Lewis just turned across him. So I know Lewis was quite adamant in the heat of the moment on radio that he got taken out by his teammate, but it was quite clear that it was it was Hamilton's fault. You know, he wasn't over-aggressive, but he took a big risk and it didn't pay off. Um, I don't think it's... I'm not saying this is the beginning of, you know, a return to the bad old days of 2016 and Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. I think it was the first type of collision where they've taken properly taken each other out of the race. I don't think that's happened at Mercedes since that year. So it's kind of obviously draws parallels with that season. Uh, but I guess the dynamic between the two drivers, it's it's yet to deteriorate to that extent and the atmosphere in the team is different now. So I wouldn't suggest things are going to run out of control in the future, but definitely work for Mercedes to do to try and unpick that incident and try and maybe remind the drivers of the the way they go racing and not to to maybe take so many risks with each other because, you know, it costs them a huge amount of points. I suppose, Mark, it's one of those ones that when the collision did happen between the two of them, the fact it was first corner, it wasn't kind of a conventional collision between two drivers. Those sorts of things can happen at first turns, can't they? So it was probably a little bit easier for for them to to shrug off, perhaps. I guess so, but I still think it showed a, a lack of judgment from Lewis. Um, yeah, obviously he was trying. He's trying for the lead to use his soft tires to, to take the lead, but. Um, I just thought the physical misjudgment of it was um, quite eye-opening and it reminded me a little bit of a similar incident with Piastri at Monza earlier in the season. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a recently developed habit that he needs to get out of pretty quickly, I think. Yeah, I think he's had quite a long period when he was winning championships when he tended to be the one who backed out of things and taking it conservative. So I wonder if he's sort of trying to ramp himself up a little bit more to to get back to being a bit more combative. But you know, it, it's it's easily done. Yeah, it was certainly uh, certainly his error. Ben, what were Mercedes saying about the whole thing? You uh, heard from it wasn't Toto Wolf. It was Bradley Lord, the communications supremo, who was talking through the uh, the, the the team's uh, approach and taking the questions from. The gathered media. Yeah, that's right, Toto. Not here this weekend because he's recovering from knee surgery, I think. Due back for the next race in Austin. So Bradley Lord stepped in to do the, the post-race press conference. We should say more than sort of a, just a pure PR person. He's very integral in that Indeed, team, yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, his position is, you know, very much kind of what you'd expect you know that they they're not going to overreact to to one incident. Um, he he did mention that the Mercedes uh, racing intent, um, which I think something is something Toto's talked about in the past. You know they they have every team I guess top team has rules of engagement how they try to manage on track battles between teammates fairly. Um, he he stopped short of saying they would need to remind drivers of their responsibilities because I think it's quite clear there's no intent from Lewis to take Russell out there's no intent from Russell to just leave his car there to have Lewis off it's just one of those unfortunate circumstances where they've come together because they're battling over the same piece of track that will happen more in the future because we know how good Russell is you know there's there's not a huge pace gap there although Hamilton's had a stronger championship this year. So it's not so much of a problem now, but it could become a big problem for Mercedes if 
they develop the sort of car they intend to develop for 2024 and beyond because then the stakes get higher and obviously the drivers, it's all very well, Mercedes and Bradley in this case saying drivers know their responsibility to the team and it's not going to be too difficult to keep them in check. But when the biggest prizes are on offer, drivers don't have quite such a team mindset. They'll be out for themselves. And obviously these two will be battling over the same piece of track more often, you'd expect. So then it becomes a more difficult thing to manage. But I reminded him of 2016 and said, well, does this give you flashbacks when you see these two guys coming together? And he said, well, you know, we're in some ways fortunate to have gone through the shared experience of managing that situation. It was obviously very uh, stressful uh, when Hamilton and Rosberg were going at it, and you know, without the external threats of other teams as well, of course. Um, so maybe they can draw on that and the lessons learned from that time. Obviously, it was a long time ago too. And although one of the drivers is a constant in Hamilton, Russell's a different character to Rosberg. The dynamics of the team are different. You know, some of the personnel are different. So I'm not sure how relevant that is. And I'm not sure really any team can control two super competitive drivers when they have the opportunity to go for the biggest prizes. Yeah, and certainly if it's a world championship fight, it's going to get very, very interesting between those two. Mark, with the Mercedes drivers out of the way, let's get into how the race played out. Certainly a little different because of the tyre parameters that were imposed. So how did that shape the race and how did Max Verstappen go about winning it? Well, it, um, it put a very sort of linear sort of parameters on um, your, your strategy because with the 18-lap limit per tyre set, it included how many laps that set of tyres had done in the weekend up to that point. And everyone had avoided the soft tyre because it had shown in the sprint that it was you know, it didn't have anything like the range in, uh, enough to, to, to be a good race tyre. So you had to work out you were working with your mediums and your hard allocation and working out how many laps you had on each of the the, the, the sets that you'd you know you you were allocated um and Verstappen had uh more laps available to him than and than anyone else up the front and so that gave him the strategic flexibility which in the end he didn't need anyway but in the way that the race played out because that 18 lap limitation was nowhere near where the tyre's performance had really begun to drop off. The tyre was still really fast at the end of those 18 laps. The the, the normal undercut pattern didn't apply. So um, you were actually better being able to stay out. So if you had more laps available to you that you could stay out without falling foul of the regulation, then you, you, you'd uh, extend your advantage. And that's what happened with Verstappen. He, was able to stay out an extra five laps over Piastri. And, um, you know, Piastri came out. He had to stop when he did because because of the the tyre regulation. And that brought him out in traffic and that just extended Verstappen's advantage. And he was was going just as quickly as as when he was being chased. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that really just made Verstappen's job even easier. Um, but that said, you know, the, the, the way that you had to run this race, I think it was Norris who was probably the first one to, to, to really figure it out because he'd started P10, obviously, because he'd, he'd had his times disallowed um, for track, infringe, track limit infringements. So he was a fast guy out of position, so he had a lot of work to do 
very early on, and he he was he was the one that noticed. Hey, these tires are holding up just fine. And he he'd said as he started the second stint, the tires were just tires were absolutely fine. We 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 need to use all the performance, and and he started doing so, and then he was picking cars off all the way through, <clears throat> um, and it was really, I think, um, different. Teams and drivers sort of cottoned on to just how hard you you, you could push the tires at different stages in the race, and um, I think Leclerc and Ferrari were quite late onto it. You, you suddenly saw them step up and pace quite late in the race. Um, I think Max didn't need to discover it. He just he was just controlling his race from where Piastri was, and he, he didn't really need to discover. He didn't you know need the question posing of i wonder how long and how hard i could push these tires because he just needed to win the race um but on the last lap before his uh, first stop um gp said yeah good you know use up the tires see what you've got and he suddenly went a second quicker so you know that that shows that he he, he had plenty of performance in hand and it's also why i, th- I think um the race wasn't quite as physically demanding for for max Given what he was saying afterwards, as as everybody else seemed to find it, and uh, you know he was that figures because he, he he wasn't having to push flat out all the way through, and this in a, such a muggy, in such muggy heat and and around such fast interlinked corners, you really would feel the the physical effort of having to go flat out, and the difference between driving at a ninety percent through that sequence of bends and a hundred percent is disproportionately greater, you know, so. I think, uh, yeah, that's uh, really just sort of just, that. That was the, the the way that it that particular set of circumstances all came together to give us the race that we had. You probably also benefited a little bit from being the one in clear air. Not that there was much air to be had for ventilation, but it must have helped him a bit. Not having hot hot cars to follow, like a lot of the guys who found the race, I think, a little bit more challenging physically. I spoke to. Uh, Mike Crack at the end of the kind of paddock trawl um, after the race. Um, and one thing he mentioned um, about this unique in Formula 1, at the, as, as we know it now, um, mandated tyre stint length and the, the three-stop race that created and the extra pushing, which must have fondly reminded you of the refueling era, Mark, I would have thought. Um, he said that, you know, because there wasn't the same strategic variation that you would normally get, and the, the tyre management and the go-slow laps, actually the cars were much more likely to finish in pace order. He was asked a question about George Russell coming through after that first lap incident with Lewis. And he said, well, you know, that's what you'd expect because you haven't got really anything holding you back. And like as you mentioned, you haven't got the undercut power that you would normally get from going from an old set to a new set of tyres. So um, on this kind of track and these particular circumstances and um according to which cars obviously have strengths on this kind of high-speed layout, you kind of got a pure pace ranking, I think, of which cars were the strongest. And Max in the Red Bull inevitably is going to be at the top of that list. And on recent form, the McLaren's not far behind. Uh, we should briefly, I guess, touch on the the reason for the tyre parameters being imposed. Obviously, this was something that Pirelli discovered on Friday night. They noticed some microscopic signs of of damage, the, the sort of early signs of a possible failure down the line. It was basically um, sort of in the sidewall uh, where the, the cords in the carcass meet the, uh, the carcass cords rather, meet the, the topping compound. So the fear was that these would fail at some point 
and so there were various sort of ways they they changed that. They modified the circuit in turn 12 and 13. They made it, I think it was 80 centimetres narrower. They brought the white line in, so you weren't hitting the most violent part of those pyramid curves, the the 50 millimetre drop. And it's interesting, obviously, lots of question marks about the tyres fit for purpose, etc. The reason for the problem was the duration and the speed on the curbs. Because if you're you're thinking about it, you're hitting those those big big shelves if you like repeatedly, and that was that was what was doing uh, the damage. And Pirelli said after the race that the solution's not really in the tyres. The solution actually is in not having quite such extreme curbs that will be uh, that will be run for that um, that duration. And it was a problem they've never seen with these tyres before. Mario Isola said on Saturday actually that he'd never seen that problem before, and I I asked him actually today a few hours ago actually just to be absolutely clear was this just something you've never seen on f1 tires before or, or never at all and he said well i said i'd never seen it at all but then someone reminded me that 25 years ago we had this problem with rally tires and that's from just really big stones just hitting the sidewall sort of repeatedly and doing the kind of damage that tells you the sort of thing they're going on it was well dealt with i think it was sensible that they put the the stint lengths in they didn't know exactly when the tires were going to fail they might have held on for a long time. You might have got to the wear limit even before uh, there'd have been a problem, but I think it was a sensible solution, very, very well implemented, but it was it was very interesting the way that it impacted uh, the race. Mark, do you have any particular objections to the Pirelli tyres behaving this way? Obviously, it's better if this didn't happen, but it, it was at least well managed, I think, anyway. It was well managed and it was um, a left field problem, so I don't think we're going to be too harsh on them and uh yeah it was, it's a shame that it, it, it created the problem in a way because um it, the, the the curb designs all caught up in the track limits um you know, problem as well and um you know a couple of the drivers Verstappen and Hamilton were were saying on uh Thursday and Friday that they actually they, they like the look of these curbs because you could go over them for performance, and but if you went too far, you would ground out the bottom of the car, and you'd lose you'd you'd lose time. And so, if you could have these curbs, you wouldn't need to be defining track limits by white lines, you know, which is where everybody was losing their you know the the, the times from. And so, yeah, it's a shame that that um, they, they they posed a different problem instead. You know, you you solve one problem and. Um, quite often create another one. Yeah, and these curbs were changed from last time F1 raced here. In fact, these curbs were, or this type of curb was the second row of curbs in 2021. So these did cause problems, but they basically had one version of the pyramid curbs, which was 25 millimeter uh, in terms of that, that drop at the highest edge. And then you had the ones that were 50 millimeter, but now we didn't have the 25 millimeters one just straight into those 50 millimeters. So they definitely need to look at the curbs here in future, given the high speed nature of the circuit. But yeah, certainly interesting how it's impacted uh, the race. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Mark, let's talk about F1's newest race winner, McLaren driver Oscar Piastri. He won the Saturday sprint race, then followed that up with second place in the Grand Prix. He's really marking himself out as something special, isn't he? Oh, he's been so impressive recently. You know, for a rookie to to be evolving as quickly as he is, it's it's, and with a teammate of of such a calibre as Lando Norris to be measured against, he's just so impressive and. It's the it, this, this weekend he was very it followed very much the pattern of Suzuka, you know, where he hadn't been before, and he turns up and he doesn't get freaked out by being a couple of tenths adrift of Norris, and he just keep, goes about learning. He's, you know, learning on the first day, and he comes out on the second day, and he's right there. And it's uh, you know, he's um, it was it was Lander who made the the, the pressure error in in qualifying for the sprint. Um, it was. Oscar, who you know, just went with it and then took pole and disappeared off into the race, and he, he controlled that race so well. And there were so many opportunities for it to, for him to go wrong, you know, the, um, the restarts and when Russell came past him, and he just he was he just dealt with every one of those problems perfectly, and um, he, he just looked like a veteran. He didn't look like a rookie at all, and so that combination of Unflappable, calm, and and just his natural speed. He really is um, looking something special. And it's such a, a, a strong lineup at McLaren now. It's interesting that Max in the press conference, when um, he was asked, did he think McLaren was probably the his strongest challenge for the remaining races? And he said, yeah, maybe Mercedes too. He says, but I think they've got a stronger driver lineup than anyone else, which was interesting given the the lineup of Mercedes as well. Um, <laughs> and I remember we did um, a piece early in the early in the season where we were each asked, you know, on, on the race to uh, talk about who had the strongest driver lineups. And I think we, we sort of said it would probably it was probably Mercedes, um, um, but I thought the I thought McLaren was probably the the, the next strongest. And um, you know, there's uh, a lot of people were. Um, Thinking that was controversial, given that one of the guys hadn't even done a race yet, but it doesn't look so silly now. And it, um, given the way that Perez is having difficulties alongside Max, it's you know I, I think the Mercedes and McLaren are they're, they're definitely the the two teams with the strongest driver lineup. Yeah, and McLaren's has arguably that bit more potential because of the. The lack of experience Piastri still has relative to the other drivers in that mix. I'm, I think it's really interesting that dynamic for McLaren now because obviously we know Norris is incredible. It's been very impressive, but he's had, I guess, a couple of quite comfortable years alongside Daniel Ricciardo, who was just not clicking at all uh, in that team. And then obviously with this new generation of car, 
lost himself. And suddenly you've plugged in a guy. No one really knows what to expect. I guess some of the old, old management of Alpine might have known. Fernando Alonso would have known. And I think, I understand he's quite, he speaks quite highly of Piastri, having worked with him for a bit. You've suddenly got this guy coming in and he's he's given Lando the hurry up. And Lando's been saying, you know, not exactly grudgingly, but, you know, he's been impressed. You can't not be impressed with the job Piastri's done. And he's admitted he's pushing him and he doesn't like it. And I feel like, well, Piastri's only going to get, or should only get better from here. So Lando's going to have to start digging a bit deeper, find some extra gears. I think we'll, we'll get a quite interesting perspective on Lando over the, the remaining races of this year and then into to next year. And it, it turns the heat up a bit and obviously gives McLaren a nice insurance policy should you know Lando decide to head elsewhere, which has been you know rumoured a few times over the past few seasons. And Norris was quite hard on himself. He felt he'd missed out on a couple of pole positions and he probably had a point. He's always quite down on himself when he when he doesn't deliver. He recovered well in the Grand Prix, but even in the sprint race, it went wrong. He basically said, I took every opportunity to go backwards in this race. So it was a difficult weekend in many ways for Norris, even though he completed that double podium. Well, it was Sting, won't it? It was Sting that, you know, his rookie teammate, I know it's not a, a real win, it's not a Grand Prix win, but it's still a victory in a Formula One race and his rookie teammate has taken one before he has and he's been around a lot longer. So that that's another little chip in the in the mental makeup for Norris, isn't it? But I, I still think overall he's the stronger driver. You saw, you know, it, on balance in the race, he was coming on strong and had to be held back really towards the end of the Grand Prix. So there's still rough edges for Piastri to, to smooth out. But I mean, he looks absolutely like he belongs at the front of the grid. You know, he's the most impressive rookie we've seen probably since Max. Yeah, I think that's true. I can see Mark's nodding in in agreement. Although I guess you have people like Charles Leclerc, I guess, <laughs> oh, yeah. stands yeah, out yeah, maybe. Yeah. But, but, you know, we not forget about him. <laughs> but that's the calibre we're talking about here. Very, yeah. very, very high calibre. And I, I think it's, there's, there's basically almost no doubt that Piastri will get, will be across the board at, at Norris light level. The question is whether he can eclipse him, really, isn't it? That That's kind of the thing. So that's what makes this battle so fascinating. But great for McLaren as well. They're now just 11 points behind Aston Martin. They gained 38 points oh, this they're weekend. They're going to get them, aren't they? I'd go as far as to say it's a foregone conclusion. Okay, Qatar was the perfect McLaren circuit of those they've gone to this year. So this was going to be a big weekend for them, just like Suzuka was going to be strong. But that McLaren... Yeah, but it's is... getting better all round. Exactly, yeah. Car. So, I mean, I just don't see how... An Aston Martin team that's ninety percent reliant on one driver is going to be able to hold that off. You well, never well, know. Crack admits too. He's like, you know, they've still got some bits they want to bring to the Aston Martin, but McLaren are too, are too quick at the moment. You know, they they they're not going to get them on pure pace. It's going to take some some bad luck for for McLaren and good luck for Aston. I think. Yeah, and uh, what a weekend for them. Another double podium to celebrate. Let's quickly talk about Ferrari now, Ben. They weren't really at the races this weekend. A subdued fifth place for Charles Leclerc. Carlos Sainz didn't even start the no. Grand Prix. So what went wrong? Well, I think coming into the, the weekend, I mean, Fred Vasseur likes to talk about his paper in which he can uh, you know, predict how things might go. And I don't think you'd have put this in the top category of circuits that would suit the Ferrari. High-speed circuit, lots of combined corners, Windy, very hot. I think the Ferrari was never going to go well here. And I don't think they stuck sprint weekend. So you've got limited practice time as well. Let's let's not forget to hone your setup and get your car into the right window. 
they started off in the wrong place with Science's car. You could see, I went to watch Trackside for the first time in four years, Formula One cars, see this new generation for myself for the for the first time. I went to turn 15, the penultimate corner, quite fast, left hand. It's a great last sector here. Yeah, last sector. So they're, you know, they're leaning on them quite hard. And Science looked quick, but he also was sparking a lot. You could see the plank grounding on the track surface. And I figured to myself, well, that looks like it's a bit too low. I don't know if they'll get away with with continuing to run that. And as it turned out, yes, they were too low. They had to come up a couple of millimetres on the ride height. And Science said that just threw the balance out. So from then on, he was struggling. They got into a kind of reasonable place, I guess. Um, but they were, you know, nowhere near Merck pace, really. If you look at how Russell recovered in the race, coming from almost stone last after the collision, he was ahead of Perez, wasn't he? Because Perez came from the pit lane. He just stormed through to a fairly comfortable fourth, Leclerc. I mean, you know, perhaps there was an element, as Mark mentioned earlier, of not quite utilising the tyre life. I mean, for, it's not the first time Ferrari would be guilty of that. But Leclerc himself said it was just a struggle in the race. No pace. So I think considering they're battling closely with Mercedes for that second place in the Constructors' Championship, here they weren't anywhere near, really, I think, being properly on the pace. It was damage limitation and... Vasseur says they've got a peaky car. It's the same situation as throughout the year, really. And even though track surface is quite smooth, it was low grip for most of the weekend, you know, resurfaced, no support races, not much running. And then you add the wind element into it, which just makes the car so unstable um, anyway, and the Ferrari particularly so. Um, because it just doesn't have that that stability that you need to maintain your confidence. And Charles Leclerc managed to prove how tricky that Ferrari was by picking up a track limits penalty in the sprints, a 19 lap race that had three safety car periods. <laughs> so that says a lot. And he, it was while he was desperately trying to hold off Alex Albon at the end. I think he maybe picked up two of those track limits on the last lap. And Alex Albon almost got him on the drag to the line. So yeah, it was a fair cut for that, but it shows how hard he was having to uh, uh, to work. So actually, I think the a good weekend. But Yeah, yeah. Well, just, we've, just we've said Ferrari, before, you know, the Ferrari is a really difficult car to drive and the team admits that. So I think, you know, the drivers deserve a lot of credit for hanging on to it. And we saw how challenging it was up and down the grid this weekend, this circuit with those conditions. So yeah, Leclerc, he did a, a really good job to to salvage what he did and and to survive the race, you know, considering how brutal it was for those in the pack. Now, Mark, let's move on to Sergio Perez because at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, it was another tough weekend for him. Christian Horner described it as a shocker of a weekend. Perez was 10th in the Grand Prix, had a five-second penalty for track limits violations that contributed to that. Why was it so tough for him? Still on this spiral, isn't he? He's just still on this spiral of confidence and takes that into the car with him and it just, you know, it just gets worse. And I don't know how many track violations, track limits violations he got, but the one that Put him out of Q3 was, um, you know, the, even that lap, the, even, even if that hadn't be, been deleted, it was seven, eight tenths off what Verstappen had done in the same car. And he's now talking about things like, oh, maybe I'm sitting a bit too low in the cockpit and can't see, but the, you know, these these are just basics. It's, it, it, it's, just, it's just within him. It, it, it's... I don't know whether it's the the continuous battering he's getting from, you know, being compared to a driver of Verstappen's caliber, 
or whether the, the 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 car really has developed away from them. Um, the teams say they, they they can't think why why you would think that because the car's not changed all that much as far as they're concerned. It's 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 within him. It's he's just gone through this horrible downward spiral of confidence. And um, it was interesting hearing Christian Horner talk about it, and in a way that said. For next year, what we're going to be looking for is, in in and he, he said it in a way that made you think, yeah, well, what if you don't get that from him next year? What's going to happen? And in a way that made you think, yeah, maybe, maybe he doesn't stay there. I think Horn is convinced that it's in, as Mark was alluding to, it's in Perez's head. And my reading is that he's had a bit of a full storm at the start of the season when the performance ceiling of the car was a little bit lower and Max wasn't quite so comfortable and the limitations of those early circuits, more rear-limited, street-track dominant, suited Perez. He had a good run, a couple of good wins. Okay, slightly fortunate in those circumstances that Max, you know, was denied track position or started further down because of a reliability problem. But nevertheless, you know, good performances. He's in the championship fight and all of a sudden he's got carried away with himself. He thinks, championship's on. And then he goes to Miami and gets absolutely spanked by Max. I know it was a close time difference at the end but you know he was on pole and Max was ninth and you shouldn't if you're a championship contender in the same car as somebody else you shouldn't get beat shouldn't be getting beaten in that scenario and from there he just hasn't been able to wrap his head around that it's it's Max unleashing his true self having figured some stuff out with the car at Baku and I think Perez has just been chasing his own tail after that he's been thinking I've got to match Max I've got to find a way somehow to beat him at his own game, and he's just got lost. And then, you know, one of these typical things we see as the team develops the car, it gets quicker, it gets harder to drive, more on a knife edge, and the best guys just go with it. And the drivers who aren't quite as adaptable and capable can't get there, and that compounds the problem. And then you can imagine Perez is starting to question things and blame other things, struggling maybe to look in the mirror a bit, and it all just goes into the spiral that that Mark mentions. and. Red Bull would just be thinking, look, if you can get to within two or three tenths of max every weekend, that's all we need. We can fend off most others. You'll finish second most races. We'll dominate the Constructors' Championship. That's an acceptable level of performance, but he's way outside that at the moment. So they're looking for him to basically get to the end of this season, reset, come out next season with a different mindset, and then we expect from that to see a significant uplift in performance. Not a Max Verstappen matching level of performance, but an acceptable distance off one of the greatest, if not the greatest drivers ever, and that would be fine. But if you can't do that, then we need to look at alternatives. It's reminded me a little bit of Valtteri Bottas at the end of 2018 when he was a pretty dejected kind of character at the end of the season, but he picked himself up for 2019 Perez. I think it's not a completely foregone conclusion. He's not going to be there in 2025. People yeah, assume they want he might it be. to work. They yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he can be. If he can focus on what his strengths are, not trying to emulate or match... Verstappen, but just do what he does, work through his process. There's still a very, very capable Grand Prix driver in there, but it maybe he needs the reset of the off-season in order to do that. But ideally, he'll turn it around so he can go into the winter kind of in a, in a at least a, a good mindset, having at least finished off uh, well. Ben, Fernando Alonso finished sixth. He had a couple of offs in the race, unusually, but the biggest story was another difficult weekend for Lance Stroll in the other car. Just to make it even more disappointing, he finished one place outside the points and 11th in the race. So why is his frustration 
boiled over. Well, it's a not dissimilar scenario to the one Perez has faced at Red Bull, I think, just at a lower level of competitiveness. Stroll has had a fine Grand Prix career so far, um, compared fairly well to Vettel, four-time champion in the other car previous season, but maybe not the best version of Vettel. And you can imagine... You know, he's, he's got his tail up a bit. Yeah, you know, I'm doing a decent job. I'm, you know, still young, room to progress. Then you plug someone like Fernando Alonso into the car, who's, you know, up there with the best drivers ever, certainly a max level, Lewis level. And suddenly there's a whole new shelf of performance, if you like. And I think he's had his mind blown a bit. And that's been a gradual process again, Start of the season, Lance has talked about the car being easier to drive, wider performance window, suiting him more. But he was still quite a chunk off of Alonso. And then again, as developments come in and some missteps as well, Aston's tried to improve the car at high speed, eliminate some of the weaknesses. It's got harder to drive, trickier Alonso as ever. You know, super adaptable, just goes with it, finds the performance relentlessly weekend after weekend after weekend. And Lance can't do that and can't do it consistently either. I mean, in fairness, Suzuka raced before. I think Aston was saying he was coming into the final section, the chicane, half a tenth up on Alonso and then just messed up that last bit of the lap and ended up, what, roughly two tenths behind, just under. Not bad, about where you want him to be at the upper end of his performance expectation. But then you come here, one practice session, again, difficult conditions. I think the wind played a big role um, you know, in unsettling the cars. They need to be very stable to, to produce the downforce consistently. That We know that if they get slightly unsettled by bumps or grounding, you, know, you don't have the same control um, on the top surfaces of the car anymore, aerodynamically, they're not barge boards. Teams are talking about the difficulty, particularly in the yaw state, of keeping the, the downforce working. That's going to be creating instabilities all over the place that the better drivers can cope with and the, the lesser drivers will struggle to cope with. And I think it's interesting in the race where you didn't have the same wind effect. Lance was much more competitive. I think he felt a lot more comfortable in the car, was quite pleased with his performance, obviously frustrated to lose the points because of the track limits, which he thought was ridiculous because of how difficult that race was physically. And he was saying, I couldn't see or feel the reference by that point in the race. You know, I was just hanging onto the car, trying to get to the end. So he'll come away from this weekend feeling better, I think, overall, despite a very tough start and the frustration boiling over after Q1 on Friday, 1.1 seconds off Alonso and, you know, the, the visible clips we saw on social media of him pushing his trainer in the garage. It's just one of those reactions to the uh, kaleidoscope of frustration that, as Mike Crack was saying, has just been building at one, it accumulates just from getting pounded relentlessly by Alonso, I think. And then at some point it just boils over and you don't know how to diffuse it or let it out in a constructive way. But they seem to brush it off. And talking to him, he was in a fairly even state of mind. He's frustrated that he's in a rut and doesn't know how to get back the feeling he had at the start of the season with the car. And it's on Aston now. This is what Crack says, to try and work out whether they can bring some of the characteristic back or even actually determine whether that is the case. You know, his 
position was we need to prove it. You know, Lance is saying this, but we need to introduce some things to the car and actually find out if that's the case or not. Um, so my reading is just that, yeah, it's 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 one of those light bulb moments. You know, he's he's got to realise he's up against a ridiculously good driver and now find out whether he's got the capacity to improve and and work towards that very high target. And one of the things that's worth asking, Mark, on the Aston Martin topic is it was unusual to see Alonso have those two off-track moments, one of which costing the place to Charles Leclerc. He's had a few little moments in recent races. Do you think he's getting into that slightly belligerent Alonso mindset when he's a bit frustrated with a car and making a few errors? Because it is unusual. Does that reflect a car that's got a lot more tricky, even for a driver of his ability? Yeah, I think it, it, it's the way it's developed and uh, the direction they took with the development has made it a little bit twitchier and, and yeah, to, to, to get the last couple of tenths out of. And in his frustration at you know the the falling level of competitiveness compared to where it was earlier in the year, he's, he's yeah he's, he's probably belligerently pushing pushing beyond what it's capable of giving uh, every now and again. Um, but you know you just know that uh, he's pushing as hard as that car can be pushed. So um, I don't think you can really uh, take exception to him making the odd um, error under those circumstances. I remember when uh, Alonso was at McLaren Honda, you know, obviously a much more uncompetitive situation than he's in right now. Um, and Eric Boulier saying that one of the most impressive things about Alonso is whenever they rolled the car out, first run, first practice session of the weekend, bang, he would be there and they would have the reference for how good or not their car performance was. And Aston Martin say exactly the same thing about Alonso now. So there's almost no degradation in terms of, you know, what he's able to bring. So whatever that car is capable of doing, he's going to be doing it. And I think the mistakes this weekend were just born out of a particularly tough race, particularly tough conditions. You know, everybody had moments at some point, even Max, I think, in the in the earlier sessions, you know, running wide and what have you. It was a very, very difficult uh, combination of um ambient conditions and a really really high speed track where the cars are properly loaded up and you know some of it I think is just guesswork you throw it in and hope it will stick and some do and some don't and some drivers just can't find the confidence and this might go back to previous events where they're in a spiral of lacking confidence and to to get the car to to go quickly enough around this kind of layout. Let's move on to Alfa Romeo now, Mark. Had its best all of the season with six points, thanks to Valtteri Bottas taking eighth ahead of teammate Joe Guanyu. Can you just explain their unusual strategic approach? Yeah, they did the opposite um, between with Bottas and um, Joe. They, they um, pitted Valtteri very early um, for a first stop on lap three. Um and actually that coincided with the safety car, but they were going to do that anyway, regardless of the safety car. They were going to get them on um, changed as, as soon as possible. And they did the opposite with um, Joe Guan Yu because they, 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 they did the maximum stint that they could with the within the um, allocated number of laps. And it worked out. It worked out, um, I mean, partly... Valtteri's was um, boosted by the fact that there was a safety car during that time, um, but um, it enabled Joe to be on the, the fast tire at the end um, with not many laps left. So uh, he was it, it, the 
you know, they, they got a, good, a pretty decent points haul from it. Um, and that was really just because they had not many um, laps on the, on, on the tyres that they had. They had a, a spare, I think Valtteri had a spare 14 laps that you, you, you could to, to give you that strategic flexibility. And um, Joe had 12, I think. And so they 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 had the luxury of of a bit of strategic flexibility. You know, they they didn't have the we got to stop within one lap or two laps at each time, which a lot of the others had who'd um, done more miles on their mediums and their hearts. And that's moved them ahead of Haas in the constructors' championship. They're now seven points behind. Williams, so that that healthy haul in that battle has really helped them. And although you could say it's only the battle for seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth, but there's just over ten million for each of those positions. So that's hugely significant, and that's going to have an impact on their budget and their capex spending and all that kind of thing. So it's huge for all of those uh, different teams, and that's really given Alfa Romeo the kick it needed to to really believe that 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 seventh place might still be possible. And of course, Williams, although they had a disappointing race today, Alex Albon did get seventh in the sprint as well. So that kept them ticking over. So that was an important couple of points. Now, Ben, let's talk in broad terms. There was criticism from the drivers about the conditions of this race. Was it pushing the boundary of what's acceptable to ask of them or should they just accept their Grand Prix drivers and deal with whatever's thrown at them? Well, I think it was incredible to see them push to their physical limits. Not all of them. So I think this is probably about on the absolute upper end of the limit. It depended on who you spoke to. You know, there were drivers who couldn't finish the race, like Logan Sargent. I mean, he was ill, I think, William said in the in the week leading up to the race. So maybe some compound dehydration. He said a couple of races ago he doesn't drink during the race either. So you know, he, he didn't last barely half of it. His teammate, Alban... He had to go to the medical centre as well afterwards with heat, exhaustion and dehydration. So, yeah, awful for them. Lance Stroll really struggled with it. He thought it was ridiculous. Charles Leclerc said it was the most extreme race bar none. But Fernando Alonso's take on it was, well, I remember some races in the past. Malaysia were quite quite similar. He remembered a Bahrain from 2009 that he said was running 41 degree ambient heat, being quite tough. So it's maybe not unprecedented, but it's very unusual um, for us in recent Formula One history. And I think the the biggest thing is that, yes, it was hot and it was extra humid on race day compared to earlier in the weekend when the heat was drier. So that that made it worse for the drivers. And then on top of that, you know, it's it's not Singapore where it's slow 90 degree bends and straights. That's normally held up now. As the, as the sort of physical limit and the race that everyone trains for. But this circuit is so much faster. The, the high speeds, the high G-forces, physically punishing anyway, then you've got the heat on top, then you've got the humidity, and then you've got, of course, an unintended consequence of the, uh, the tyre problem and the imposed stint lengths that everyone's pushing that much harder. So I, I'm not saying it would make have made a critical difference, but obviously if the race had run normally and people won, I think Mark, you suggested it would probably be a one-stop race in normal circumstances. You wouldn't you wouldn't have had drivers pushing flat out for 57 laps. So they would have had moments in the race where they could take some pause and probably not just push themselves beyond their their physical limits. Yes, yeah, one of those things a few drivers were talking about whether there should be 
a set limit for the temperature they have to endure, etc. And there is a limit to what can be dealt with, and it was flirting. Stroll was talking about having cooling in the car, and I was thinking, well, if you have aircon, you're going to need to have closed cockpits, but we've gone away from that, haven't we? So- you can have the sort of cool suit stuff, can't you, that, that, that sometimes use in endurance racing and that kind of thing. So there are ways of doing it, but I suspect um, there's going to be talk about making sure that this race doesn't creep this early in the year. Next year, it's not this early in the year. We should say even uh, by... Qatar standards, it, it's been hot this week and we got in a taxi on uh, on Wednesday night and the, the, the driver basically said, oh, it's been really hot recently. And it's like, well, we think it's always hot here. So, But if, Desert, but but if, a, lo- so but if a local expect. is saying, well, even by our standards, it's super hot, you're like, wow, this, this, has, been, uh, this has been tricky conditions. So well, yeah, it's you, a tough You were one. here for the 2021 race, no? And yeah, that was yeah. slightly later in the year, maybe a month, a month and a half. And this wasn't a topic, I don't think. No, was it, it wasn't. No, I remember it being hot, but not, quite so so difficult i mean you even notice it wandering around the paddock and that kind of thing not not doing a fraction even of of what the uh, the f1 drivers are going through should notice uh, we should know that esteban ocon as well said he, he threw up during the race as well he did a great job to battle on and uh, and and come home uh, seventh which is about as good as you were going to get in an alpine so uh, so he did very very well there um and deserves some some credit for persevering but so uh, yeah really really tough We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, as per tradition, we'll round out the podcast with questions from the Race Members Club. Thanks to everyone who sends in questions. Apologies if we can't get to every single one of them. We have had so many for this episode and we can only get to some of them. We're going to try and save a batch of the ones that are slightly less race specific and tackle them uh, before Austin. And thanks very much. We do read them all and try and get in uh, the maximum that we possibly can. Mark, your first question comes from Mark Paffin, who says, is the heat the only reason for the drivers having more problems with the physical part of driving? Or is it because like in the V10 era with refueling that they need or could push harder every lap? And thus it became more demanding than if they had to manage a one or two stop race. And Ben has touched a little bit on this. Do you think that's a, a fair way of looking at it? Oh, absolutely. You you need um, you expand so much more energy um, if you have to push full on than, than if you're just tyre managing. And uh, I remember when uh, Formula One transitioned from you know the, the 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 era of flat out sprints in between a lot of pit stops into the, you know the the control tire era, so from the tire war era to the the control tire era, where you were um, conserving the tires, and I remember several drivers saying, 
this is so easy physically. I'm not even having to train as much as I used to because it's just so much easier. You just, you're not putting very much strain on yourself. Um, so yeah, it makes a massive difference. Ben, the second question, we'll aim at you, comes from Stephen Stoib, who says, regarding Carlos Sainz's car, can you explain how a car that is working perfectly the previous day can develop an issue overnight that keeps it from competing? Sometimes you just have random occurrences of problems, finger trouble, you can introduce them. Sometimes you have a hidden problem that you don't discover until it's too late in the day to do anything about. Sometimes the car isn't in perfect condition condition the day before and in Carlos Sainz's case he was complaining after the the sprint of a a problem with the battery and the recharge the state of charge after the safety car periods there was a suggestion with his car this weekend that you know maybe hitting those curbs had caused some damage that had accumulated Um, Fred Vasseur was asked about the fuel system issue we presume a leak an unfixable leak after the race, and but he he had nothing really to add. He said they'll send it back to Marinello and do an investigation. He said by Monday or Tuesday they would know what the source of the problem was. So it could it, it could just be one of those random failures that you you have sometimes. You know, Ferrari wouldn't be the first time that one of their components had let them down randomly, and then they have to check on the supply or manufacturer. Equally, it could have just been wear and tear from the the forces. If something's loose and then it moves around and gets battered, it can break. Um, so I can't say specifically with Science's car exactly what happened because um, investigations are ongoing. Yeah, just one of those things that can happen, unfortunately. Question I'll take now from Dan Kay, who says, with so much talk about the tyre issue this weekend, the track limit saga seemed to take a back seat. I was taken aback with some of the driver comments, seemingly putting the responsibility on the FIA. In particular, George Russell called it an embarrassment. I know visibility is dreadful, and this weekend the limits were changed at turn 12 to 14, but there were many infringements at other places on the track. These were meant to be the best drivers in the world, and by their own admission, if a wall or gravel was there, it wouldn't be a problem. What fixes are an option, and should the drivers take more responsibility for this? It almost sounds like a football player blaming the ref for not keeping the ball on the field. Well, it's difficult because I'm a big fan of natural track limits, whether that's a wall or whether it's some grass or whether it's something if you go over, you lose time. And then it's not really an issue because then it's kind of, well, let the Bible wear as a driver. You measure your level of risk. You might smack the wall. You might get away with it. You might have a moment on the grass and lose half a second. You might hang on. All of these things just come normally. And we're trying to kind of recreate this with the track limits things. And it just looks a bit, it does look a bit silly. Um, but obviously you want to balance up the safety side of things. You don't want to endanger drivers, etc. The problem is the drivers, as soon as you have a track limit that you can get away with running over, you're almost obliged to try and push it to the millimetre. And yeah, you want to not overstep it, but you know you've got a few jokers you can get away with. So you think, well, I can do it one, two, three times and I'll be all right. And so you use up a few and then you make a few more mistakes and it all happens. Not that many drivers actually in the Grand Prix got track limits penalties in the end. Exactly. Well, and that's the other thing. It was very, very difficult, and it was also a, a sort of quite uh, a quite low grip track in that drivers were having moments that were normally little moments that were bigger than they would be in normal circumstances. So it's easier just to spit the car that little bit wider. But yeah, to, to come back to the question, I think it looks a bit stupid for Formula One, and 
this has been a long-term problem. This has been talked about for ages. There does need to be something hit upon that can solve this and mean it's not manually managed. But Mark was saying earlier about the, the these pyramid curbs and how the drivers were quite, I wouldn't say excited about them because obviously they don't get excited about curbs, but figured that it was a good solution to the track limit issue because it imposes a hard limit. But obviously then you run into this tyre problem that probably hadn't yeah. seen before. But is it possible to design a tyre that doesn't, potentially fail in that way from striking those curves because that seems to me like the ultimate solution you have these curves which are a natural limit and then you have a tire that can withstand hitting those that natural limit without braking yeah that's the, that's the ideal there's two things there firstly pirelli say that they can do design a tire and they have got a tire that can withstand those curves it's where just is a, it it's just that it was exceptional duration this weekend uh, and it's all about the construction of the tire and the way you're impacting though and if you look at those those sharp drops they've got and he said it's basically like taking a hammer with a pyramid sort of head on it a little point and you're just hitting like the tire a hundred times a second and that just sort of tells you the sorts of force that are going through so yeah it should look at the tire, the way the tire should be improved Mario Isla said after the race that he feels this is definitely a curbs issue or the curbs at this circuit because of the speed of the circuit issue rather than a tire thing so yeah and actually it's a good point you make that that sort of severity of curb is in the neighbourhood of what's needed. But, yeah, we just do need something whereby track limits isn't the thing. And even before the track limits were changed at 12 and 13, people were getting done for track limits. Perez in qualifying on Friday, as Mark mentioned earlier, for example. So, yeah, it's a, it's a watch this space thing. This is going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to be a problem for a while. But I think desperately important to get away from this because it just looks a bit silly and it annoys drivers and it's punishing people when they've already lost time and that that's just not really a, a right way it, it's doing this vague simulation of, of having natural track limits but just doing it terribly so yeah we've got to find a way to improve that mark next up for you a question from peter diamond who says this is their first question submitted to the podcast so thanks very much for uh, getting involved does the tyre problem, plus a race with overtakes, even at a high-speed track, show that drivers can follow, but only when they can push? Yeah, it's it's the tyres the allowed them to push without having to worry about conserving. It was, you know, if, if it had been just the natural um, Grand Prix, standard Grand Prix weekend where these limits didn't have to be imposed upon the tyre, as we said before, it would have ended up as a as a one stop race, but you would have had to have been doing a lot of time management. And in those circumstances, you cannot keep trying to pass a car ahead of you. It takes too much from the tires, and you'll just get slower and slower and slower. Um, so the fact that you had a whole lot of reserve tire performance, even even at the, when the time came that you had to ditch them. It meant that you, you had the luxury of being able to attack the car in front and not not worry too much about whether it would do, knock too long off the life of the tyres because it didn't matter. That was an irrelevance. It was, it was more that, I think, than anything else. Next question for you, Ben, comes from Daniel Donowski. He says, is it too soon to wonder if Norris and Piastri will go the same way as Verstappen and Ricardo? So I presume this means as in one of them is going to get usurped and wants to leave. Yes, there. That's that was my reading of it too. Um, I think it is too soon. Certainly, we can wonder that in down the line, but I think where McLaren is at the moment, you know, they 
they just want to have the two best drivers in the car while they build back towards being properly competitive. You know, they've had a great season so far. Having both drivers push each other on is definitely helping them. You know, the contrast with Aston Martin is stark. And you know, considering where McLaren started the season and where they might end up, you know, that shows the value of having two properly competitive drivers in the car. Norris is obviously the established one at McLaren. Pastries, the new kid on the block. I don't think it becomes a major issue until or unless Norris feels like McLaren is gravitating around Piastri. If McLaren decides that suddenly Piastri has Max Verstappen levels of potential, like he's a he's a guy who's going to take on Max or eclipse Max, then it becomes tricky for Norris. But that that's ultimately what led Ricardo, I think, to leave Red Bull. You know, he was the established guy, he'd seen off Vettel, he'd won races, he was getting himself ready for a championship tilt, and then in his Max Verstappen almost out qualifies him on his first weekend in the team, and suddenly Red Bull are like, wow, you know, this this is the guy. It's going to take a bit of time, but it's all about him. And you know, then they did the big contract for Max at the end of seventeen, and Ricardo could just see which way the wind was blowing. Piastri and McLaren, Norris are not at that point yet, but it could go that way. Let's not rule it out. Next question I'll take from Noel Boyle, who says, are we now counting sprint race wins as legitimate Sunday wins in the sport? I'm delighted with Oscar Piastri's heroics, but think this just cheapens topping the rostrum if this is the case. Uh, well, no, we're not counting them as as Grand Prix wins, so it's it's almost a separate little side pot that really nobody particularly talks about. But yeah, th- this is not Oscar Piastri's first Grand Prix win. No, we're not counting them. It, no, we're not counting it. But but it's a it's a first F1 race win. So I'd actually liken this to when you perhaps win a, a high level non championship race. So. One that sprung to mind was when Keki Rosberg and the Theodore won at Silverstone in the International Trophy in 1978. Real upset of a win. He didn't win a World Championship race for several years, but for a period he was an F1 race winner, but not a, a proper Grand Prix winner, not a World Championship race winner. So that's kind of how I consider this. And just as with non-championship F1 race wins, so the sprint race wins kind of disappear into the ether in terms of the statistics. But it's a great achievement and he deserves to celebrate it, etc. And I think they... It tells you much about what we're doing in terms of what we're looking at when the race finishes. They don't have a rostrum for the sprint races, do they? I know we're always running around seeing what drivers have to say, but they they just they they have some kind of ceremony on the ground. They don't go up on the podium. Absurd, I know. We don't really know this, but we're sort of looking elsewhere when it when it happens. So it, I think it's nice that they save the proper podium for for that. So I think it, it's it's okay, but still a great achievement. And I don't think it'll be too long before Oscar Piastri's got a proper win and in fact, proper wins to go uh, with that one. Mark, back to you now. A question from Deck Clancy, who says, this is a question based on Saturday's sprint race. GP told Max to look after his tyres to end up with an advantage at the end. I know that the safety cars played their part, but in a straight fight at the end, Oscar was able to keep the two-second advantage. Was this down to a combination of Oscar being a superb talent and McLaren seemingly being able to do no wrong with the upgrades they bought in the last few races, or down to Max just wanting to bring home the title? The latter doesn't seem to fit Max's mentality, and he wasn't vocal on the radio about not being able to catch Oscar. No, I don't think Max had surrendered. I think he was um, he, he, he was trying to win the race, but he'd put his tyres through an awful lot of work because he'd he lost all those places at the start, so he had to he had to re- reclaim all those. Whereas Piastri had a, a relatively serene run from the from the front, and uh, yeah, I mean McLaren is um, 
getting better and better. And I think this was the hardest. It put Singapore aside as just an outlier. This was the hardest Red, Red Bull has been pushed all season. And it was, you know, the, the, the McLaren was genuinely very, very close on pace to the Red Bull around here. And um, I think just the fact that the, the Oscar had track position and was able to to drive a, a you know, a, a, a contained race was the, the thing that made the difference. And uh, by the time Max got through the other cars, um, he, he, he didn't have the same tie life as, as Oscar had. And Oscar really, you know, made sure he, uh, he, exploited that to the to the maximum you know he, he noticed that when he'd uh, he'd overtaken Russell Russell was really struggling on his soft tires through the the high speed section at the back and and realized that that's where Max would be losing time because he was stuck behind George so that's that's where he really you know pushed really really hard in those last few laps just to to get that buffer Dan Elliott next with a question we'll aim at Ben. Liam Lawson quietly exited stage left after finishing last. Are you expecting an even more recharged and motivated Ricardo for the next race? I think everyone is expecting him back, but we can't say for certain yet, I don't think. He was meant to be back for this race, wasn't able to return because his hand hasn't healed sufficiently. I think Franz Toss said Ricardo has a sim session start of this week, so presumably that's the same kind of analysis again, and they see how much better a state his hand in is, is in after a bit more uh, recovery. So watch this space. If his hand is healed, and he can, if his hand is healed sufficiently so he can drive again, then uh, yeah, comes back for Austin, and he'll be raring to go because he'll he'll have been annoyed to have missed this run of races, a chance to get you know more ingratiated with. Alpha Tauri and ready for next year. Next year is the big one for Ricardo. This is kind of a free hit, really, I think, for him to get back into the swing of F1 and, and relearn the team and, and just get a feel for things and development directions, etc. Um, the important one is next year, um, where he gets to kind of prove what Red Bull thinks it's seen in its own simulator um, that got him in for Nick de Vries. Um, but at the same time, it's it's worked out well overall for Red Bull because Lawson has been more impressive than Red Bull were expecting. So even though this weekend wasn't particularly good for him, um, he can he leaves or potentially leaves F1 racing for now with his reputation massively enhanced, and Red Bull know it has a Red Bull knows it has a good option to count on should it need it should it need him. Yeah, it was a bit of a shame that what looks like being the last race of his stint was probably the least impressive all round. Obviously, it was a track he'd not driven before, just the one practice session. I did ask him about how do you reflect on this stint in general because it seems to have changed your career direction. And he sort of said, well, yeah, the race is up to this point. We're going well. But it doesn't help that I've had a pretty disappointing one to finish off. So, Liam Wilson, uh, I don't think it makes all that make difference. I, I don't think it does. But I like the fact that he was thinking, well, this was the last marker I could lay down, probably because we are expecting Ricardo back, but it's always possible, as you say, might not be the case. So I think that's just a drive. He's not had a good weekend. Yeah, so chin he, up, chin up, Liam. He wanted to, to finish on a high, but I think there will be plenty of uh, next Grand Prix for Liam Lawson after what well, he's done. A question now from Chris Paris. I'll take, do you see a future for maximum stint lengths? I, for one, love the extra strategy dynamic, and I think the race was the better for it. It probably was the better for it. I'm not keen on maximum stint lengths at all, because... They tend to box people in on strategy, in fact. You ideally want multiple 
viable strategy. So I'm very, very wary about that. We have seen various pit stop window rules in the past in all sorts of categories and generally they tend to lead to rather uniform races so i think we have to be a little bit careful about what we it was artificial uh, wish for it? that exactly thing, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that also it was introduced mid-weekend when teams had already allocated their tires and used them according to a different strategy plan so plus you have the random element of it just being new so once you factor all of those things out and then teams get their heads around it as you say, it becomes uniform and it won't be as exciting. Yeah, I think it's okay. It's worth discussing and what was learned, etc. But yeah, I think this the was pushing element. This, I think. This, this, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's plenty of other things you can do to create strategic interest, but I don't think boxing everyone in is necessarily the uh, the, the way to do it. Or better tires is, is one of them. That's something for uh, Pirelli to work on. Mark Christopher Partridge says, were there any potential issues regarding changing the configuration of the track after qualifying on Friday? and the race on Sunday, specifically that they would be racing on a track they had not qualified on? Or was this negated due to the 10-minute reconnaissance session on Saturday? Or was the change too small to matter? Uh, the latter, I think, Christopher. I mean, the, the, the drivers would acclimatise to that within a couple of laps, I would say, maximum. It's not, it's not a big deal. You know, you just, you, you, see, you see where it's changed. It's slightly changed. You alter your line slightly, alter your approach, and that's it. You've done it once. It's, it's, it's natural after that. They were quite surprised to even get the bonus session, I think, most of them. They were like, oh, thanks very much. We didn't really need it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the fact it was a sprint weekend meant that they also had another qualifying session anyway. So even though they hadn't qualified for the Grand Prix on that precise configuration, they had done a qualifying session everything so that's acted as the uh the way to dial yourself in and they had a sprint race as well so yeah they all said it was easy as well exactly yeah you can't go changing tracks willy-nilly but that was a fairly minor uh tweak and, and one forced by uh by circumstances ben a question from chris shaw who says should lance stroll be punished by the fia for the conflict he inflicted on his team member surely they cannot let this play out unpunished as this isn't any less of an incident than when max verstappen pushed esteban ocon after their contact in Brazil back in 2018 when he tried to unlap himself on Max. A strong message needs to be sent, in my opinion, and this only magnifies his struggles this season relative to Fernando Alonso in more competitive machinery than he's been accustomed to. Wow, big question. I mean, you could you could make that argument. You know, what, what Lance did was over the line, I think. You know, you shouldn't be going around pushing people. I think it's slightly apples and oranges comparison because in the Verstappen-Ocon incident, a, they were from rival teams, but also Ocon did something particularly provocative during the race, which ruined Max Verstappen's race and cost him a victory. And then he sought him out for a, you know, what should have been a discussion, but obviously became more heated than that. So I think he was punished in the way that he was having to go and spend time, I think, stewarding at Formula E, or at least seeing how stewarding worked. Um because of all of those things and the kind of premeditation in what Max did, I think that was quite crucial to that outcome. Whereas in Stroll's case, it was over the line, but it was a, it was an immediate adrenaline fueled reaction to a particularly disappointing moment, as we've discussed earlier on the podcast, and something that they could settle in-house as well. I don't know how Aston are going to deal with it internally. Mike Crack has said that they do need to talk about it, but in the quieter moments away from the weekend when everyone's calm. That could be glossing over it. Stroll insists that, you know, his trainer, they're bros. 
is the phrase he used and you know they're on the ride together they're cool you know it's just a, a flashpoint caused by disappointment and it's been blown up because it's very visible um I, I presume there would have been a facility to report that behavior to the stewards or refer Lance during the weekend for a reprimand or punishment that didn't happen for whatever reason maybe because the team his own team would have had to report it I don't know um so whatever happens he gets away with it I think um but certainly in the future he should learn to deal with his disappointment differently. And the final question I'll take from Ansi Rulamo, who says, was there any excuse for Pierre Gasly's lack of racecraft? He overtook Stroll clearly outside the track, and then instead of letting him go by into turn four, he waited until the main straight when Perez was there as well and lost the position to him too. It seemed completely unnecessary. Uh, yeah, I would agree. It wasn't Gasly's finest hour. I mean, the excuse is it is quite difficult. It was well into <laughs> yeah, a pretty, a, a pretty yeah. hard race. So, yeah. you know, it, it happens. It happens. Um, yeah, it wasn't brilliantly executed, and it did cost him. So, yeah, it. it I mean, Perez. It, it was. Dro- it wasn't a great bit of wheel-to-wheel racing, but I, I, you, you get how it happened, and yeah. <laughs> well, Perez was driving the car with probably the best straight-line speed. Yeah. No, so for Gasly to go round, it's not quite so easy. He had to, you know, try something aggressive, I guess, and very difficult to get the precision right. That was a, such a tough race. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. Yeah, like I say, it wasn't great. It was, I mean, Gassi will look at that and think, yeah, that that wasn't necessarily a great series of decisions because it didn't work for me, but you'd rather see drivers try things. that you yeah. don't, I mean, if they would, if that, if Gasly was doing that every race, you'd think, come on, learn. But yeah, it, it's a one-off. Yeah, uh, not not good, but I don't think it's part of a wider pattern or anything. So I, I think right. that's all right. Well, thanks very much to Mark and to Super Sub Ben Anderson for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there about this race and the rest of the world of Formula One. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, the Race F1 Tech Show, starring the legend that is Gary Anderson. We've got IndyCar podcast, Formula E podcast, Moto Gary Anderson, podcast. who uh, wasn't accredited ah, for yes. this race in Qatar, but when I turned up at the accreditation centre near the circuit to pick up my pass... Uh, they presented me with Gary Anderson's pass because for some reason, having accredited me, they'd printed the wrong one. So I had to wait for two hours for my own pass. But I have Gary Anderson's pass here as a memento. Um, I did try to blag my way into the paddock as Gary Anderson but and pretend that he was my dad, but they weren't having it. So I had to wait for my own pass in the end. I did make the joke about Gary Anderson being your dad when we were trying to sort this problem out when you picking up your pass, but, and we should say they are not related, they're just two people called Anderson, but then that caused extra confusion because I didn't realise I was joking. So yeah, it was just uh, one of those things. But yes, listen to the Race <laughs> F1 Tech Show is the answer to, is, is the point we're trying to make. And if you're going to print out a uh, print out a pass for a Grand Prix, make sure you've got the right Anderson because uh, we have two of them at the race. And yeah, listen to all our podcasts, watch our videos on YouTube as well. And stay with us on the Race F1 podcast because we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. <laughs>